0: have read that in the United States, somebody goes blind every 20 minutes. There are now 25 million adults living in America, according to the National Federation of the Blind, who suffer with significant vision impairment of some sort or another, including total blindness. In fact, for years before her death, my godly mother-in-law was legally blind as a result of diabetes. My wife still displays in our home her Bible and the magnifying glass that my mother-in-law would use as she held up her Bible really closely to her face and then with her magnifying glass was able to read those verses of Scripture that meant so much to her. My wife and I had lunch some time ago with a couple where the wife was learning to manage now that she was legally blind a condition that had developed since birth. Talked to a gentleman some time ago in our church who was undergoing extensive testing because of the ever impending threat of blindness. If you and I were told by God to choose a physical disability, I'm quite positive that very few of us, if any, would choose to live with blindness. According to the letters of John, this aged apostle, it struck me as I studied this particular paragraph, but we'll look today at 1 John chapter 2, that that he's concerned about blindness of the heart and the spirit. In fact, according to his letters, we'll find out today, the Christian makes decisions every single day that affects his ability to see. He makes decisions that either allow him to walk in the light where he can see or to walk in the darkness where he cannot see. In one of his most uh, hard-hitting paragraphs, he opens at verse 7 as he begins to challenge us to Put away the the darkness of hatred and live in the light of love. He's going to challenge us to leave the shadows behind. And you notice at verse 7, he begins this paragraph, which is going to be really hard-hitting, with his first word, and it is the word, the term, beloved. It's an affectionate term. He's going to use it six times in this in this letter, and I think it's it's fitting here. As he begins this hard-hitting message, he, he calls us his beloved. He says effectively, I'm gonna tell you to love, and by the way, I love you. Kind of like a parent saying, I'm gonna give you a spanking, but it's because I love you. Child says, I, I wish you didn't love me so much. John says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit you pretty hard. Um, but before I do, I want you to know that, that I love you. And he begins with this wonderful phrase or this wonderful term, agapetoi, beloved. You immediately recognize agapetoi in that, the noun form agape, don't you? It's the Greek word for deep, faithful, self-sacrificing, in it for the long haul kind of love. Agape is selected by God's Word as opposed to the culture of the first century. It uses this word to refer to relationships in the home and in the church and between God and man. Agape is not fickle. It isn't temporary. It isn't driven by the emotion of the moment. It is determined by the will. And the will that acts bears the fruit of emotion and affection. The loss of this kind of love, this agape, commitment love in our culture today is the reason that you can now lease a wedding ring one year at a time. I mean, why go all out? To the average person on the street, love is something as... Changeable as the weather and, and a pair of shoes. It's no different in the first century. In fact, it was probably worse. Seneca, the Roman philosopher who lived during the lifetime of John the Apostle, wrote that Roman women of high society named their passing years with the names of their passing husbands. They came and went like seasons. To this day, the world is still enamored with the idea of of falling in love, isn't it? Just go to the grocery store and read the tabloids. I mean, it's all about that. But the world falls out of love as quickly as it falls in love. That's why God uses a word that doesn't talk about falling in love. He uses a word that talks about choosing to love. Warren Wearsby comments on this term here by writing, That biblical love isn't about attraction. It's about determination. It's not a matter of working it up. It's a matter of willing it out. The surprising thing is that this kind of self-sacrificing love isn't just for spouses and family members. It's for the entire body of Christ and, and beyond. And so John begins by reminding us of what true love is. And he opens by telling us that he loves us too. Now before we dive into the paragraph, and we'll get through the whole thing, so you know, don't sweat it. I think that this probably surprised John's childhood friends and his early adult year friends to hear him using such affectionate terminology, like my little children and, 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 and beloved. <laughs> this isn't the John they... They knew. John was nicknamed early on as he joined the disciples. You remember, Jesus nicknamed him the son of what? Thunder. This fiery-tempered man. In Luke chapter 9, it was John who, who wants to call down fire from heaven on a village that had refused to give them shelter for the night. Lord, let's let's torch them all. What do you say? And Jesus said, that's not my spirit, John, speaking. (laughs) Oh, rats. It was John's mother who came to Jesus and said, what do we do do to make sure that James and John, these brothers, these sons of mine, get to sit right next to you in the kingdom? They want to be at the top of the ladder. Fiery, passionate, self-centered, judgmental, Now as an old man, he's telling people he loves them. Isn't that a wonderful progression to pursue? So though he will still be passionate and fearless and confrontational, he he tells us first and foremost that he loves us. Now with that, he begins to tell us how to make sure we avoid the darkness and walk in the light. Look at verse 7. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word, which you have heard. Now he's going to reveal this idea of loving. The concept of love and the commandment to love is not new stuff, right? Like the truth is, by the time John wrote this letter, the command to love God and one another certainly wasn't new. But it it was neglected. It was buried. The rabbis had spent several centuries, as they had started centuries earlier, to to create their vast commentary, which would be known as the Talmud, on on the law. They would go to the books of Moses, the Torah, and, and they scoured it, looking for every command, every mandate, every charge, every regulation, every rule. And from them they created many of the traditions that now bind them. Long lists of do's and don'ts. For instance, they cataloged 613 commandments from the Torah. They believed that those 613 commandments matched the 613 components that make up a human body. And I'm not sure where they got that from and didn't want to research it, but uh, that's... It was exciting to them. They cataloged 365 of those 613 negative prohibitions. One for every day of the year. Oh boy, we get to get up today and not do something. They love that stuff. The problem is that stuff had buried love. John says, let's just kind of dig our way through the mound and let's go back to the core of it. That old great commandment. Of course, they would have all remembered the greatest of them, the core of it all, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 combined again. They prayed that every morning and every evening. In all of your lists, have you forgotten the old commandment to love? Well, let's unbury it. John says, "Let's dust it off. Let's bring it out into the light of day. Uh, let's let's take it all the way back because it goes all the way back to God's original design." And so, at this point, for the Bible student, you're saying, "I'm tracking with you, John, and know exactly what you're talking about. You're right. It it isn't new. It's old. It goes all the way back to the beginning, and that makes perfect sense." And now, let's go to the next verse, where he says in verse eight, "On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you." You're thinking, "No, wait a second. He just turned completely around on me. I thought it wasn't new. Well, the word John uses for new, it's a difficult English translation for us. And in fact, it confuses us. So you might write into the margin of your Bible this. He's not referring to chronology, new as in reference to time. He's using a word that refers to new as in reference to quality. There's a new quality to agape. There's a brand new, fresh way of looking at it. This is what Jesus meant when he told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you. That you should love one another. It's new about that. Even as I have loved you. Oh, it's a new, fresh, unique demonstration of agape that is like none other, right? And that really simplifies everything for us. It doesn't make life easy, but it does make the goal visible. Uh, so, John, perhaps in his mind, and maybe to the Jewish readers, don't let your list of, of 613 commandments, you know, your 365 prohibitions and your 248 affirmations, get in the way of what matters most. Give it a fresh, new look, give it fresh, new demonstrations. And who do we look to to find out what that's like? Jesus. In fact, he he says that effectively here, middle part of verse 8. He says, uh, this is true in him. Oh, it is. And in him, we see the model of agape, love. The world will not know what to think when they see that kind of demonstration. And neither will the church. John is writing the church. He's writing the believer. He'll, he'll pare that even down more, more clearly as we get through this. Many of you perhaps know of the rise and fall of televangelist Jim Baker. Maybe you're old enough to remember the stories of the fraud and deception and financial misdealings. He was sentenced to prison where he would serve a number of years. He was interviewed by Christianity Today after being released, years after being released. In fact, the interview I read is about 10 years old. I can't believe I'm that old. But he said that uh, Franklin Graham had visited him. I never read this before. I found it intriguing and illustrative of John's comments here. Franklin told him, you know, when you get out of prison, my family's going to sponsor you with a job and a car. He said to the person interviewing him in the Christian Journal, Baker said, I thought it over. And then I told Franklin, look, if you do this for me, it's going to hurt your reputation. Your family does not need my baggage. Franklin insisted. When Baker was released from prison, True to their word, they paid for his lodging and a car. In fact, his first Sunday out, Ruth Graham, Billy's wife, called the halfway house owned by the Salvation Army and asked permission for Baker to drive to their church in Montreat, North Carolina and attend services with him. Baker said, I got permission, and when I arrived at the church, I was seated with the Graham family, two rows of them, aunts, uncles, cousins, they were all there. And then in walked Ruth. She walked down that aisle and sat next to me, inmate 07407-058, and effectively told the whole world she was my friend. After church, she invited me up to their cabin for dinner just up the road. They're in their cabin home. She asked me for some addresses, and I pulled this envelope out of my pocket. In prison, you're not allowed to have a wallet. You just carry an envelope around. She asked me, don't you have a wallet? And I said, well, yeah, this is my wallet. After years in prison, you think an envelope is a wallet. She got up and walked into another room. A few moments later, came back and said, This is one of Billy's wallets. He doesn't need it. Here, you can have it. What a fresh, Christ like demonstration of love. And as I read that, I thought, Stephen, would you have done that? Would you have? Maybe you notice John's laser beam application in verse 8. I mean, we're we're tracking with him. We've got the example of Christ. On the other hand, he says, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him, Jesus. And we all say, amen. Oh, I'm not finished. And in you. We all say, oh, my. Right? This isn't just for Jesus. It's for all of us. John says, look, there's actually a bigger deal going on here than you might think. We're not only demonstrating the love of Christ, but we're also demonstrating something else. It is the light that we represent. Notice the last part of verse 8. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now what does he mean? Luke's gospel recorded the prophecy that the coming of Jesus Christ would be like the day spring from on high. In other words, biblical language for the sunrise is going to take place. And he goes on to say, and the light of Christ will shine upon them who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Luke one seventy eight and 79. The birth of Jesus Christ marks the sunrise of the light. Eternal life. True light. The gospel. Now there's still darkness, yes. We know that. We're surrounded by it. But as the light of the gospel permeates culture, darkness has to flee when the light shines. So to John, love and light are part of the gospel. We would like to say, hey, we're in the light, we got everything right. And he says, well, what about the love? Others would say, I got love, but I don't worry about the light. Both are part of the gospel message. Now notice the warning in verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Now there are some who would say, oh, now John has changed his perspective. He's now talking about an unbeliever. And that would actually be a convenient interpretation. I mean, there's no way a Christian can hate somebody else. Perish the thought. The word John uses here for hate actually means to detest. It has this underlying attitude that despises Somebody else. Moves over to the other side of the hallway or other side of the street. Is it possible for a Christian to detest someone else? No. So John is talking about all the sinners out there. I like that interpretation. No, that isn't what he's saying, is it? In fact, the problem with that view is that it isn't consistent with John's audience and even his vocabulary. Look again in verse 9. If he despises his whom? brother he doesn't use the generic term for the brotherhood of man he, he isn't talking about a biological sibling he's referring to someone, one Greek scholar brought out, who has an affinity of character by being members of God's family by virtue of the new birth he's actually talking about us brothers brothers and sisters. He's specifically saying that if we, brothers and sisters in Christ, detest one another, hate one another, act hatefully toward each other, despise each other, we have virtually gone back into the shadows of the darkness. We represent the darkness, not the light. No, by the way, we end up doing more harm than good not only to other people, but to ourselves. He's effectively saying, your beloved, none of you belong in the shadows. Get into the light that is demonstrate the light of Christ by demonstrating the love of Christ. Get out of the shadows of hatred and unforgiveness and bitterness and jealousy and all those things that belong in the dark. I found an interesting illustration of this in the life of Corey Ten Boom. Her family, remember, they were caught by the Nazis and sent off to prison camp for hiding Jews in their upstairs bedroom. My wife and I toured that home and saw that upstairs closet they created by building a fake brick wall, and they would hide Jews as they would shuttle them from one safe house to the other. They were caught. After Corey's release and the end of World War II, she sensed the Lord leading her to just simply travel as a single woman sharing the gospel and her testimony. And she did that. And early on, in fact, soon after the war, she was invited to come to a church in Germany, of all places, and share testimony. So she agreed. And as she stood before that congregation and shared her testimony, she recognized a man sitting in the audience. He was one of the most brutal guards in the Ravensbrück concentration camp where she and her sister had been placed. The same concentration camp where her sister would effectively starve to death. She wrote that it was one thing for me to talk about God's love and forgiveness and another thing entirely to be asked to demonstrate it. At the close of the service, She writes, much to my dismay, that man came to the front and stood in line with the others to meet me. His hat and dark brown overcoat washed over my memory, and I could still see him in his black overcoat wearing his cap with its skull and crossbones emblem. My blood ran cold. When his turn came, he moved toward me and quietly said, I have become a Christian. I have asked God to forgive me for all the cruel things I did in that camp where you were. And I have come tonight to ask you to forgive me too. She writes, How can I forgive this man when my sister's emaciated face seemed to appear in the memory of her cruel death lay an icy hand upon my heart? The former Nazi guard held out his hand and the seconds seemed like centuries. The indwelling Christ prompted my response and I reached out and took his hand and immediately supernatural warmth flooded my heart and with tears coming down my cheeks, I said to him, I forgive you, my brother. What do you do with that? This is what John is talking about. He blows the world's minds, and ours too, frankly. This is what it means to leave the shadows of hatred's darkness behind, and in certainly much less dramatic ways. Here's the point. This is for us too. We face decisions of darkness and light every single day. Will we choose to walk in the shadows or will we choose to walk in the sunrise is the question. Now with that, John provides at the back end of this paragraph two timeless principles of truth to live by in these next two verses. Let me give you the first principle. A life of love sheds insight on the path ahead. He's going to give us an incentive and even a greater encouragement. Certainly living for Christ, modeling Christ, demonstrating Christ is good. But he wants us to know that when we live a life of love, it sheds insight on our path. Would you like some insight on your path? I sure would. He writes in verse 10, look. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. What does he mean abides in the light? To abide in the light simply means to live in the light, to walk in the light, to be at home in the light. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. You want to walk in such a way that light is shed on your pathway? Well, here's a fascinating discovery. John effectively says, love Happens to be the light bulb. Turn it on and it sheds light on your pathway. You want insight on the path ahead? Turn on the light bulb of love. I know that sounds like a 60s song, but that's basically what he's saying. And how bright would you like your light on that path? What kind of love and to what degree do you shed? Ever since a a few weeks ago, having our home broken into, now the the back of the house lights are more important to Marcia and I than ever. Right there by the back door that leads in from the deck and then over by the door that leads into the bedroom. Right in the back. That matters now more than ever. I don't even... I don't know if I ever thought about it before. Well, the truth is, my wife asked me to change the light bulb out there many times, which I didn't do, but that's none of your business. (laughs) So I went to Lowe's, and now, you know, I'm I'm interested in, in light bulbs. You know, they got like a thousand different kinds of light bulbs. It's ridiculous. Just give me a light bulb. No, you got this kind, this this is yellow, this is white, this is soft, this is bright. You know what kind of light bulb I want? I want the biggest one that I can fit into that thing, and I want it to burn for like three thousand hours, and I want it to be so strong that I can grill my, you know, grilled cheese sandwiches out there on those panes, right? I want light shed on that deck and out into the backyard. I mean, how much light do we want shed on our lives, our path? Well, how much wattage are you putting in your love lamp? (laughs) The brighter your love, the more insight. So the question isn't, how little love can I get by with in life toward other people? It's how much. Because, man, do I need insight on the path ahead. The more love... The more light, the more light, the less of a chance of stumbling along the pathway of life. Moffat translates this phrase this way, in the light there is no pitfall. Makes sense, because you can see them coming. Someone bound up in their little lives, just go from one pit to the next, can't see anything but themselves begin to love and suddenly the light is shed. Oh, look at that pitfall coming and look at that one coming. There's a body of scholarship, by the way, that believes John may be referring to not only avoiding our own stumbling but helping other believers avoid stumbling as well by loving them. Frankly, I don't think we have to decide. You could have both ideas in mind and both are certainly true. When you love the brethren you avoid so many pitfalls, and when you love others, you end up helping them, don't you? You end up helping shed a little light, maybe through encouragement or insight of your own, to avoid pitfalls in their life. When you choose to see the best in them, when you, when you choose to act in love toward them, you, you just might be directing their path as well towards something more glorifying to God, It's what John is doing here for us. Some of you may know that Howard Hendricks passed away a couple of weeks ago, literally touching as a professor at Dallas Seminary so many lives. In fact, I read some of the profiles. I watched the memorial service on the Internet this past week. He taught for more than 60 years teaching more than 10,000 students. I'm so glad God allowed me to be one of them at the end there. I read his profile and learned a few things. He was raised in a broken home. His parents separated soon after he was born, and he used to say that he split up the family. His grandmother tried her best to raise him, but he was difficult, to say the least. This online article said he described himself as a troublemaker during his younger years. In fact, his fifth grade teacher in Philadelphia once commented that Howard Hendricks was the most likely student to end up in prison. She was serious. Now today a teacher could be sued for doing this, but uh, at one point, on one occasion, she became so exasperated by his troublemaking that she tied him to his seat with a rope and taped his mouth shut. (laughs) <laughs> Some of you are teachers, and you're thinking, I like that idea. i got a few students. <laughs> I was that kind of student. His troubled heart would radically begin to change, though, when he met his sixth-grade teacher. When he was introduced to Miss Noe the next year, he said, I never forgot that meeting. She looked down at me and said, Howard, I've heard a lot about you, but I don't believe a word of it. He said, those words would change my life. Talk about shedding a little light through a demonstration of grace and love on somebody's path. A sixth grader. One author summed up this verse so well when he wrote, Love makes us stepping stones instead of stumbling blocks. It's well said. Secondly, not only is a life of love shedding insight on the path ahead, but a a lack of love diminishes insight on the path ahead. See, John, he's going to... Hit hard, he he isn't just going to tell us, you know, the incentives, and here's the wonderful thing about it, oh no, let's turn the coin over, look at verse 11, but the one who hates his brother, oh man, we're still talking about Christians, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes, possible for a Christian? John's use of the present tense participle, translated "hating," simply depicts this characteristic attitude. This person, the believer, is known in the assembly for being hateful. He's known in the community for being spiteful. John says this person is choosing to live in the shadows, to effectively turn off the light and walk a dark path. John even adds, his eyes are blinded. That verb records the blinding impact of hatred in this person's heart. Like the, uh, the corrosive effects of my mother-in-law's diabetes that slowly took her eyesight John warns here that when a believer allows hatred to simmer and fester inside his heart, he might think he's none the wiser, but in reality, he's slowly losing his spiritual perception and insight in his path is growing more and more dangerously dark. Hate pulls curtains over the windows of the soul through which God would shine insight and truth. So what happens to a believer when he doesn't love the brethren? John turns the coin over and he says, look, he lives in the dark. He lives with that insight. Spiritually foolish. He probably thinks he sees better than the rest of us, Right? But he's actually blinded by the darkness of his own self-centered hatred, his hateful spirit. See, this is the kind of person who causes trouble in that Bible study you or leading, or in that church assembly. He thinks he is the spiritual giant among them, but he's actually a spiritual baby with little understanding or spiritual perception, and you might have a conversation with an individual like that, and you'll walk away and you'll say to yourself, they do not see it. They really don't get it. And they don't. Because our lives are wrapped up in themselves. So here's the warning from John. This paragraph, I could summarize it in one sentence, and you could say, just give me the sentence, and we could have gone to lunch a long time ago. No? No. Mm-mm. Here it is. Love is not blind. Hatred is. Love doesn't put on the blinders. Hatred does. Love doesn't refuse to see. Hatred does. Love sees. It opens the eyes of the heart. It, it, it pulls back the curtains on the windows of the soul. It, it leaves the darkness and it walks in the light. So choose to love. Love. You will shed insight on your pathway and the pathway of those around you as they walk with you who need the wisdom and the encouragement of God just as much as you do. In all of the different testimonials that came in from around the country related to the homegoing of Howard Hendricks, one very touching one was written by Chuck Swindoll who was also taught by Hendricks and now serves as the Chancellor of Dallas Seminary. And I read his, his testimonial, and I'll start wrapping things up with this. He wrote, after nearly completing my seminary education, four years of intense study at Dallas Seminary, Cynthia and I were almost certain our unborn child would not see life outside the womb. The financial and personal strain of those seminary years was difficult enough without the anguish of potentially losing our child. I needed a friend to talk to. So late one evening after studying in the library until closing, I thought I would find a professor who might put his arm around me and listen. I went to the faculty building and knocked on a door. No one answered. They'd gone for the night, of course. I walked a little further down the hallway and knocked on another door and no one answered there either. And, and then I saw a light shining underneath another faculty door and I knocked. After a moment, the professor, and I knew him, opened his door a crack, just a crack. Yes, he stared at me. Yes, Chuck, what do you want? I stood there with tears forming in my eyes and I could hear though in his voice he didn't want to talk to me. So I said, am I disturbing you? Yes, you're disturbing me. What do you want? I said, well, nothing. Well, fine, he said and closed the door. The next morning... Swindoll writes, while still trying to find my way through the maze of emotions and get up on my own feet from my depression and my fears of losing our baby and maybe even losing my wife, I ran into Prof. Hendricks. He had already heard the news, and he walked up to me, put his arm around my shoulder and said, tell me what's going on. He listened He told me of their own miscarriage years earlier and how he and his wife recovered from that tragedy. Swindoll writes, From that day forward, I wanted to learn even more from him because I knew he cared about me. And then he adds a familiar axiom that you may have heard before. He said, I learned then, like never before, that people will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. I find it fascinating that the Apostle John doesn't warn us that we're in danger of turning out the light and walking in darkness if we don't have our Greek grammar down. I'm really glad for that. Or that we haven't memorized his letter. Or that we haven't You know, been faithful in attending all the services of the church. Or we can check off the boxes on a theological examination. All those things are wonderful. But he boils it down to this. Is your love lamp burning brightly? Brightly. Others. And so, with these questions, I close. What pitfalls are you dangerously close to falling into because you're harboring a hateful spirit toward another? Who is it in your world who would be greatly encouraged by your care? Who is it that could use your insight to help them regain their footing on the path of light? Who is God asking you to selflessly serve? What is God asking you to faithfully commit to all over again? Who is God asking you to love today? Father, thank you. Thank you for delivering this message through an old apostle who over 40 or more years of living for you went from wanting to call down fire on people he didn't like to speaking so affectionately toward people like us that he didn't even know. Would you help us to um, make sure the light is on? We know yours is. You're the light of the world, but you want us to demonstrate that light as well. How easy it is for a bulb to burn out and then just be ignored with the thought that, well, we'll get by without it. Thank you for reminding us it is so critically important not only to others but to our own walk that must be bathed with the light of Christ. We commit our hearts to you afresh today. We love you because you first loved us. Now help us to love everybody else too. In your name we pray, amen.